it was simply a journey. I was seeking to learn more about healthcare, um, having trained in a country that was much less developed when we think about healthcare systems. I think the primary way that my journey has informed my view of healthcare is in that it exposed me to the practical realities and the impact of disparities and inequities in health. And yet at the same time, it also taught me that it is possible to manage healthcare, even in a resource-constrained environment, to serve vulnerable populations. And I think when I look at both aspects, that's what keeps me optimistic. You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. You just heard from Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson talking about her journey. She really has a unique perspective to bring to healthcare, and it started in Nigeria in an under resourced hospital, and it took her all the way to one of the world's largest healthcare companies. So stay with us because we'll hear more from her later. But first up, let's talk about rural healthcare. Rural healthcare is in dire need of investment and resources. People in rural areas have poor access to healthcare and worse health outcomes because of that. So something needs to be done, but what? Private equity firms own at least 130 rural hospitals, with three firms owning the lion's share of them. But private equity investments can mean bad news for some of these organizations and the patients that depend on them, especially if they prioritize high returns and sacrifice staffing or important medical services. A recent report on private equity ownership in rural healthcare highlighted numerous examples of conflicts of interest and profiteering. Some firms argue that they bring much-needed capital to these struggling companies, but maybe these deals need to be scrutinized. And that's why we have our first guest, Mary Bugby. She's a research and campaign coordinator at a nonprofit financial watchdog organization called Private Equity Stakeholder Project. She talked with Anastasia Gladkovskia about a new report she co-authored at the Organization on Private Equity in Rural Settings. Here they are. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic. It'd be helpful to just start by zooming out a little bit and talking about private equity deals in healthcare. It seems like the past few years have been a boon for them. PitchBook just put out its quarterly report on private equity and healthcare services and said that it 2022 was the second best year ever for these deals. And I'm just wondering what you make of this trend and maybe what you think makes healthcare in general uh, appealing to private equity investors. So private equity finds healthcare appealing because it's quote unquote recession resistant, because there's always going to be demand for healthcare services no matter what, because people are always going to get sick. Um, they're always going to get hurt and injured. Um, people are going to keep on giving birth, et cetera. Um, and then we also have an aging population in the United States, and that increases healthcare demand further. And we have a huge um, chronic disease burden as well. 
So things like diabetes also create a lot of investment opportunities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to be clear, like, is there something that sets apart the rural healthcare space in terms of its appeal for private equity investors versus like other healthcare sectors? Yeah. So at, at face, it doesn't seem like rural healthcare would be super attractive because um, it appears that it's not that profitable. But it has become this space, not just rural health, but rural America has become this bipartisan rallying cry in recent years um, because, you know, there's been a lot of academic analyses um, that have shown that rural America has left be- has been left behind on a lot of metrics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this political push to invest more in, in rural America and in rural health in particular, but there's not too much public investment there. So that creates opportunities for private investors to come in and fill those gaps, um, which can be good, but sometimes it comes at a cost. Um, So for example, like struggling hospitals can attract not so great investors who are looking to make a quick buck, um, maybe strip away hospital real estate, and then sell the hospital, maybe even close the hospital after they've made a lot of money off of it. So, yeah, rural health, it, it is an attractive space, partly because of, you know, this this bipartisan um, rhetoric around investing in rural health. Is it fair to say that when a firm invests in a company or a hospital, they are looking to make a profit? Yeah, absolutely. So private equity firms, like the typical playbook is to make an outsized return over a short period of time. So like a 25% return over like three to seven years. Um, And they accomplish this by using um, debt. So through a leveraged buyout. So when they acquire a company, um, they borrow against that company. Um, That debt is basically placed on the company, not on the firm itself. And the Mm -hmm. use of debt helps magnify their rate of return. Um, But it can create problems in healthcare because debt service obligations, excuse me, obligations can take money away from, you know, operational expenses um, Mm -hmm. and just overburden companies. And there's not a lot of ways to cut costs in healthcare without impacting patient care. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. And I'm thinking about rural healthcare in particular because I've done some recent reporting on uh, struggling rural hospitals, which of course have a lot of financial struggles and uh, limited, especially limited staffing because it's more difficult to convince clinicians to work in rural areas. What are the consequences of a private equity investment gone wrong or or profiteering off of something like a rural hospital? Yeah, so this can look like many different things. Um, so common like cost cutting strategies that can really negatively impact a hospital. Um, or other healthcare company include understaffing and overburdening clinicians, um, you know, with caseloads. So skimping on medical supplies and equipment, failing to adequately maintain facilities. Um, Another big strategy that we've seen with private equity firms in particular, it's not as common with other types of companies or um, investors, but it's called a, a hospital sale leaseback transaction. So they take the real estate of the hospital and they have the hospital sell that real estate to a real estate investment trust. And then the hospital then has to lease that real estate going forward. And it's essentially asset stripping because a lot of times the profit from that sale 
benefits the PE firm, um, the investors, um, not so much the hospital. So when the PE firm finally sells the hospital, then um, they've they've made a huge buck. But now that hospital has lost one of its most important assets. Mm. And in the Rural Health Report, we highlight a, a pretty egregious example of this with a private equity firm that really didn't have a lot of experience investing in healthcare, um, lateral investment management. So they bought Santa Cruz Valley Regional Hospital in Arizona in eighteen in 2018. They bought it for $26 million, and then they sold the hospital's real estate for $60 million in 2021, wow. and the hospital ended up closing in 2022. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Hmm. And what can hospitals do? Is there anything they can do to sort of have the foresight to to say maybe this is not the best deal for us, maybe this is not the best buyer or investor for us? Well, going back to why rural health might be attractive for private equity, struggling rural hospitals often don't have a lot of choice about buyers because there aren't a lot of potential buyers. Um, so they might be more likely to accept, um, you know, an, uh, an offer that's not very good for the hospital. And there's this general consensus, and this is, it's pretty dark to say this, but having a poorly run hospital or a bad hospital is better than having no hospital available at all for mm. the community. Mm-hmm. And so rural hospitals who are facing closure, yeah, they might end up, you know, entering into a deal with a private equity firm if it's the only deal that's on the table. Yeah, that's really unfortunate, especially given the implications for communities, like you said. I wanted to ask, you know, diving into the data that was uh, some of which was new and revealed in the report, for example, you were able to come up with the figure of 130 uh, private equity firms own 130 rural hospitals. Um, And I'm sure that's in at least, not at most. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, like, contextualize that number? Is that a lot? Is is that just a fraction of the total number of rural hospitals? Like, what does that ownership mean exactly? So it's a it's a small fraction of the total number of rural hospitals. Um, well, maybe small fraction isn't right, but I wouldn't say it's a majority by any means. But it's still troubling because there's a few health systems in that number that own a ton of hospitals. So LifePoint is a big one. Um, They have 52 rural hospitals and their sister company, which is owned by the same private equity firm, Apollo Global Management, has 19 hospitals. So that's a lot um, for, you know, a rural health system. Um, Quorum Health, which was, I believe, was publicly traded. um, It entered into bankruptcy a couple years back, and now it's owned by an individual in a private equity firm. They have 17 rural hospitals. And then Ardent Health Services, which is owned by Equity Group Investments, has 15. And then there's some smaller um, investors like the Lateral um, Investment Group that I mentioned that bought the Arizona hospital. That was kind of like a one-off deal for them. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's less about maybe the number of rural hospitals, but more about the fact that just a few private equity firms own so many that are spread out across regions and that opens up the door for for monopolizing or profiteering? Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. And the profiteering can still happen, um, you know, with the with private equity firms who don't necessarily have an entire chain of hospitals. 
Okay. So moving away from hospitals now to other areas in rural healthcare, for example, physician staffing firms. Your report mentioned an example in Vision Healthcare, which is owned by the private equity giant KKR. Um, and Envision Healthcare has spent millions of dollars to lobby against legislation that would protect patients from surprise billing and has been shown to be, you know, partly responsible for America's surprise billing crisis. I'm just wondering if you think that was necessarily because of that private equity ownership. Are there any, is there any evidence to support that, or maybe this is just an anomaly, a bad actor um, gone wrong? So Envision Healthcare, I think, first attracted attention um, prior to its private equity ownership, um, along with Team Health, which was owned by private equity at the time. There was a study by Yale researchers who looked into the two companies and found very compelling evidence that both companies were using a surprise billing strategy um, to to make outsized profits. And I believe that that's probably what made Envision an attractive investment target for KKR, which is the private equity firm that bought Envision um, in one of the largest leveraged buyouts um, since the financial crisis. Wow. And shortly after that, um, that's when it really started heating up the the public scrutiny, the legislative scrutiny around surprise billing. And Envision, and excuse me, Envision is not doing well right now at all. Um, they're at risk for bankruptcy, according to a recent Moody's report. But I do think that private equity didn't necessarily cause surprise billing, but I think they saw an opportunity in that business model um, in their acquisition of of Envision. I can see how that business model would be appealing for private equity firms. And another one that I wanted to talk about was travel nursing. It pays well and uh, sort of creates the cycle, like your report mentions, where permanent staff are incentivized to leave and become travel staff because they can work for independent agencies that pay better. Under-resourced hospitals can't compete with that pay. And I'm wondering, arguably, this is just free market forces, right? I guess I'm wondering if there is a solution to this because we can't necessarily dictate how much someone is going to pay and and what an attractive benefit might be, right? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So I actually wrote a report on private equity investments in travel nursing last fall. And when I was doing research, I was finding there's just been a lot of controversy around the idea of price gouging, if these um, high rates could be called price gouging. And the staffing industry um, lobbying group themselves, you know, their position was, no, this is supply and demand. This is the free market at work. And so there hasn't really been any um, move that I've seen from the federal government or from state governments to actually treat it as price gouging. Like, how do we get more doctors and nurses into rural areas? How do we pay them a competitive rate? And, you know, public public investment, like public monies might be the way um, we have to go there. Do you know if any of the regulators have seen your latest report or if you've heard of any concern expressed by politicians or otherwise uh, in response to some of your findings? Yeah, a few um, staffers from a number of federal legislators have reached out to us about the report. And we also 
reach out to policymakers as well when we publish a report like this. Um, yeah, and there's been a lot of brainstorming about what, how, how can we combat, um, you know, the the biggest problems we see with private equity ownership of healthcare companies. Also, what's politically feasible at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also very tricky. So even if people have great ideas, if they don't see it having a chance of getting passed um, in this session, it's not going to be something we see movement on. But as an organization, I think we're very interested in what states can do in state level um, legislation. So we have a number of sort of ideal or like model health policies that could be used to combat some of like the the biggest abuses we've seen by private equity firms. Um, And one of them is just a very basic increasing oversight of um, hospital transactions. So for example, states can require that for-profit healthcare facilities give notice to state regulators before entering an agreement um, or undertaking a transaction that involves an asset sale or disposition or changing control and management or governance. And then nonprofit healthcare facilities converting to for-profit status can also do the same. And then the regulatory authority can reject, approve um, the transactions with conditions after review. And some of these conditions could be, you know, capital commitments, commitments to keep the provider um, or certain essential services open for a set number of years, um, notification requirements if there's going to be a change to services. So if they want to cut out a service, they have to notify state regulators, mm-hmm. um, limits on selling their real estate, limits on the use of um, debt to finance mm-hmm. an acquisition, and um, importantly, protections for workers um, if there's going to be mass layoffs. So things like guaranteed severance pay um, and, and health benefits for a certain period of time. So these are just some ways like states can take more control over hospital transactions that are happening in their borders. And it's not just, you know, for private equity, but you know, based on what we've seen with private equity, this is how we sort of come up with these these ideas. Does it seem like any state so far is interested in pursuing some of these approaches that you just mentioned? Um, potentially Pennsylvania. Um, Rhode Island already has pretty, com- comparatively speaking, they have pretty strong regulations for changes of ownership um, for healthcare providers. But the challenge here, too, is which states, you know, the states that are most likely to um, pass legislation like this are not necessarily the states where we see the most private equity owned hospitals. So we see the most private equity owned hospitals um, in the south and the southeast. What would you say to investors that that say that, you know, we don't need any additional regulations, we are acting in good faith and you know, we we help fill like a critical need in the market. There's mounting anecdotal evidence from healthcare providers and hospitals that have been acquired by private equity firms where we see major issues. Um, and I would also add that there's mounting peer-reviewed um, evidence looking at the impacts of private equity acquisitions on physician practices in particular, the the data is pointing towards costs going up 
um, increased utilization when there doesn't necessarily need to be increased utilization. Great. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time and for explaining um, private equity and rural healthcare today. Thank you so much. That was Mary Bugby and Anastasia Gladkovskia. And so now we're going to get to Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson, whom you heard a little bit from already. Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson joined United Health Group nearly 15 years ago. But first, she was a physician in her native Nigeria. She treated patients in the United Kingdom and in the U.S. And now she's a chief medical officer at the United Health Group. It's one of the world's largest healthcare companies. So in that position, she has the ability to influence clinical care on a massive scale. Senior editor Paige Minnemeyer caught up with Wilson to discuss her career journey and how that impacts her perspective on caring for patients. Here they are. Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for joining me. You were born in Nigeria and became a doctor there, and your career has taken you to the United Kingdom and across the United States before you settled in, in your current role at United Health. Um, how has that experience informed the work that you're, you're now doing? Initially, when I started my career journey, it was simply a journey. I was seeking to learn more about healthcare, um, having trained in a country that was much less developed when we think about healthcare systems. As I look back, though, I think the primary way that my journey has informed my view of healthcare is in that it exposed me to the practical realities and the impact of disparities and inequities in healthcare. And yet at the same time, it also taught me that it is possible to manage healthcare even in a resource-constrained environment, to serve vulnerable populations. And I think when I look at both aspects, that's what keeps me optimistic, um, that we truly can lean into healthcare transformation and that health equity is truly possible. You've discussed in interviews that you were you know, initially discouraged from pursuing your dream of becoming a doctor because it wasn't something that, that women traditionally did. Why did you decide to push through that and become a physician despite that kind of opposition? I think the first reason is really the optimism of childhood. Looking at this through the lens of a child, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. My grandfather was a nurse, and he was a nurse in Nigeria, working in a very resource-constrained environment where the doctor visited once a month. So it was obvious to me, even as a child, that there was a challenge with workforce capacity. And I thought I would then take it on. And I think as a child, the question of gender differences and gender bias didn't really resonate with me. And so from a place of optimism, child-related optimism, I pushed through. And as my journey continued, it was almost a personal lesson um, in understanding that gender really didn't correlate with intellectual ability or interest or career aspiration. You know, for maybe women who might be feeling similar pushback in, in the industry, I mean, what would you say to them about why they should continue to move forward? I would say simply put, simply because they can and they should, right? And that's from the standpoint of personal drive. The larger reason, though, is because 
the populations and the people that we serve span all genders. And I think one of the things that we have become increasingly aware of is that the best results are driven when those who provide care are like those that they serve, share similar characteristics, and even when they don't understand the differences. So it is important if we're going to get there, it's going to take all genders, all races, it's going to take all of us. You touched on this a bit, but a 2020 study from researchers at Penn found that patients treated by a doctor with the same racial and ethnic background were more likely to give their physician the maximum patient uh, review score. So, you know, why do you think it's it's important that patients receive care from physicians who who understand their lived experiences and can incorporate that into the care they provide? When we think about health today, I think we must recognize that we've moved away from the archaic definition of health as the absence of disease. It's really much more holistic than that. It brings in social determinants of healthcare, cultural factors, socioeconomic factors. It's really about how do we live life. And so everyone brings a cultural, multi, a complex cultural dimension to their healthcare ecosystem. And it is important for healthcare providers to understand that experience. And you know, simply put, I think the easiest way to understand another's um, lived experience is to have a commonality and to have shared that lived experience. And that plays out in the way patients are listened to, the way care is delivered, the understanding of the patient's response. But here's where we cannot afford to remain in a relatively basic space. We've approached that to date as the basic demographic categories. So black with black, gay with gay. But if you think about it, intersectionality brings with it a new reality. And it will get challenging at some point to continue to match category to category as you think about provider patient. We cannot possibly have enough providers for that matching to occur. And so this is where it's important that we take it further. And so, yes, it's about sharing a lived experience but it must also be about learning about a lived experience, listening for a lived experience, and being able to synthesize a lived experience. Because at the end of the day, each person, each patient has a completely unique set of lived experiences, way too complex for us to package neatly in a box. And so the pursuit of health equity lies in understanding how intersectionality plays out in the healthcare ecosystem. You mentioned intersectionality. I think when people talk about equity, a lot of the conversation centers around racial and ethnic groups, but LGBTQ plus patients, you know, have frequent negative interactions with the healthcare system. A, a 2018 Center for American Progress study found that 6.7% of LGBTQ plus patients avoided the doctor's office due to fear of discrimination. Um, what can healthcare be doing better to care for those patients? There is significant opportunity, let's start off with that, across the industry. And one of the ways that we are approaching that in United Healthcare um, and United Health Group, including Optum, um, is again multi-pronged because there is the patient perspective, the person perspective, which is important, 
And then there's also the provider perspective. So where we are working in both spaces, it's important for us. And we've engaged in um, listening exercises, um, actually broadly working with partners to survey that community in order to obtain data that would truly help us understand the challenges. We're also very intentional about infusing um, LGBTQIA sensitivity into our overall product uh, product development uh, to ensure that that community is catered for, particularly sensitive to the high incidence of mental health um, um, challenges within that community. And a really important area for us is um, ongoing, and that is actually building out trainings for our providers, again, to help deepen that understanding of the needs, social cultural needs, um, and just to increase cultural sensitivity as we engage with the LGBTQIA population. As a black woman, as a lesbian, which is also therefore a member of the LGBTQIA community, um, as an immigrant, um, there are multiple perspectives through which I have learned to view healthcare. At United Health Group, you have on one hand, you know, a really large national health plan, and Optum is one of the country's largest employers of doctors with about 60,000 physicians under the umbrella. You know, with that base of assets available, um, how does that enable you to, to really get at some of these equity challenges? You are correct. We do have a pretty large footprint. But I think central to what we do and the reason why we believe we are making an impact is because regardless of the footprint and regardless of the scope and the breadth of our capabilities, compassion is at the core of everything we do. One of the areas where we see that play out is in our in-home care solution model. You may be familiar with house calls. And that is a model where we actually take the care into the person's healthcare ecosystem because it's important for us to be able to see the individual in their full context. Last year, we did over 2 million house call visits. And one of the things we were determined to do was try to figure out how much undiagnosed disease was in that population. So we screened about a million people. And out of the million, we found that one in every four had a disease condition, a chronic disease condition that they were not previously aware of. So that was one benefit. The second was that we were able to do a, an analysis, an evaluation of their social determinant of health sphere. Um, and that was really helpful in enabling us to close the gaps. And these visits are done by licensed nurse practitioners and advanced um, practice clinicians. So, you know, we bring all that together and it enables us to really deliver care that is unique and personalized, and also not just urban, but also rural. As we've touched on, health equity and racial, racial justice have both been, you know, huge topics in the industry coming out of the pandemic and, and certainly following the, the murder of George Floyd in 2020. You know, as we kind of distance ourselves from both of those events to some degree, I mean, do you think there's a risk that the conversation around equity could could fade out of the mainstream in healthcare? And what do we need to be doing to make sure that does not happen? I do agree with you that there were events, including George Floyd, including the COVID, that heightened the urgency of the discussion. I do think, though, that as we've all sat back and watched the discussion, something interesting has happened. 
I think we have successfully scaled the threshold. We've scaled the threshold and we are now in that space where we are all aware that this conversation that has been triggered must continue to resolution. And I think what's different today is really the recognition, which we firmly believe in, that what's important in the conversation is the voice of the consumer, the voice of the patient, the voice of the person. And so for that reason, I do believe that this conversation will continue. The voices are more assertive in the discussion. And on the other end, the providers, including us at United Health Group, believe that it is important for us to continue to listen. And I think the listening is becoming more impactful. So the dynamics have changed in the conversation. And for that reason, I think this is a conversation that will continue. And it must continue. You know, as we close, I, I want to ask you to to take out your crystal ball a little bit and look to the future. Um, what do you see as the next frontier for equity, you know, in the next five or over 10 years? In the next five or 10 years, um, I do believe that we would have made significant progress. It's really about leveraging technology, leveraging digitalization leveraging data to build models that are flexible and accessible and are affordable and also offer up high quality care to the people that we serve. I think leveraging those capabilities, which we continue to do, will enable successful closure of several of the gaps and the challenges that drive inequity. The balance here will be to ensure, and this is where we focus, again, the house calls program is a good example, where we focus on ensuring that there is a healthy balance between technology, digitalization, automation, and humanization. So in five to 10 years, if we get all these elements right, I think we will truly be at the point where inclusive care models are a reality in several spaces. But again, it's going to take all of us collectively, including the community, um, to make that a firm reality. Dr. Wilson, thank you again for, for taking the time and joining me today. Thank you so much, Paige. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss how abortion restrictions can impact maternal and infant health. And we'll also hear from Michael Millinson on patient safety and quality outcomes. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.